0: Open in your Bibles tonight to the 13th chapter of the book of Psalm. We're going to read our text and then we'll take these requests to the Lord in prayer. is it good to be together tonight? What a blessing to be with God's people. And uh, I've missed you this week and I'm thankful for another opportunity to get to be in the house of the Lord with you. Amen. Well, we've learned not to take that for granted, haven't we? because uh, we don't, we're don't, we not promised that we'll always have that opportunity, uh, at least to do it as freely as we have heretofore enjoyed, but I'm thankful to be with you tonight. Psalms chapter number 13. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 just six verses in this short psalm, and we'll read the entirety of them and then go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The psalmist crying out evidently in a time of great distress, he says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say I have prevailed against him. and Those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice In thy salvation, I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be in your house. And Lord, so many blessings that you have afforded to us that we often give you praise for and give you thanks for. And then somehow we file them away in the back of our mind. And are so loath to bring those things up again and to bless your name again for your rich bounty for us. But Lord, here we meet tonight in a comfortable building. Here we meet under relative freedom in this country. Here we meet together with all of the appointments and luxuries that we enjoy day in and day out. And God, let us never be forgetful for all of your blessings and benefits upon us. Lord, we have come tonight a needy people. And Lord, the blessedness of our life does not necessarily remove or negate the burdens of our life. And we have come with burdens. We have come needing you to intervene in various matters of our lives and the lives of our loved ones. And there are spiritual needs tonight, Lord, which of course stand towering above all other needs. And we ask first, Lord, that you would meet those needs according to thy will, understanding, Lord, that it's your perfect will, Father. It's your desire that all should come to repentance, that none should perish, that we would stand perfect in your sight in the full stature and measure of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask for financial needs that uh, we may have in this building tonight, knowing You are the God of provision, that there is nothing beyond Your capability, that there is no need so great You cannot meet. Physical needs, Lord, tonight, being fearfully and wonderfully made in Your image, we know that whatever resources and whatever benefit medical science may give us, we know that ultimately, Lord, we can come to You as our Creator and ask that You would minister to these physical needs that we face. Lord, so many more we could name category after category, but in all things You are all sufficient. So we ask that You would meet these needs according to Thy will. And Lord, that uh, it would be met in such a way that would redound unto Your glory, that we would look at what You've done in our lives and we'd have to say that it's been God that's done it Lift our hands in praise unto You for Your goodness and grace. Bless the preaching now. May it stir the hearts of Your people. May it feed us tonight. And may it draw us closer unto You. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When we read the 13th Psalm, there is a phrase that jumps out at me. And it may have occurred to you as well in the reading of it. And I really just don't know how to say it except to say this is what's been on my heart lately. This is how I've felt lately, and I bet there's probably some folks in this room that's felt this way too. Notice with me a phrase found in the first couple verses. In fact, it's the very first two words that are found in this psalm. The psalmist opens by saying, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? He then asks, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Verse 2, he says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? And then once more, he says, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? The psalmist cries out, and I don't know if it'd be fair to attribute to him impatience, but certainly he is longing for God to intervene in a wicked world, in a dire situation, in a calamity that he is facing, And can I say to you tonight again, let me just go ahead and set aside all of the uh, all of the sort of sermon pomp and circumstance and just tell you, I don't know if you felt this way lately, but I've looked around at a world on fire. I've looked around at a world where wickedness seems to run rampant. I've looked at a world where injustice is daily on display. And I don't know about you, but lately I found my heart saying, how long, oh Lord, how long will it persist? Uh, we could walk through theological structure and premise behind the what we might call the tarrying of the Lord's coming. We know that He's not really tarrying, that everything's done uh, with divine timing and, and with divine providence. But uh, just tonight I don't even want to walk through all that. Tonight I don't even want to go through. I just want to say that sometimes I think we all get feeling like David felt in this psalm. Sometimes, be it the national calamities that we experience, it be uh, the political turmoil and upheaval that is so present in our day, be it our uh, family challenges and battles and obstacles, seeing loved ones make decisions that we cannot understand, uh, seeing people caught in the grip and guile of iniquity. But whatever it may be, we look at it and say, how long, Lord? How long? How long? And I think tonight that as we look at this psalm, we will find some points of sympathy and empathy, some things that relate deeply to what you and I probably feel at times in our life. But I think we also find some instruction as to how we're supposed to meet those days. I think that there are days probably that you and I wake up and we may go all day and never say how long, Lord. But there are probably a lot of days that we wake up and it's our first heart's cry as David's was in this psalm. You and I both know that the psalms are are uh, scriptures and passages of worship. Very often they are public passages of worship. But I think it is apparent that there is something deeply personal in what David's saying here. And it seems as though his first words out of his mouth when he started to pray was, Lord, how long? And I think that as we walk through this psalm, we will find some things that are of great comfort to us and some things that are of great help to us. Notice first off with me tonight, if the Lord will help us, we won't be long. Of course, the Lord helps us all the time, but I seem to preach long, so I don't know what that means. But I want you to notice with me tonight, first, the psalmist's complaint. In the first two verses, the psalmist is complaining. Now, before you act like you're too spiritual to complain, let's go ahead and all put it out in the open that, number one, we all complain to God. Number two, the Lord does not begrudge us complaining unto Him. Let me say, it's okay to complain unto God. It's okay to question God. What it's not okay to do is criticize God. There's going to be times in your life and mine we ain't going to understand what God is doing. And in those times, I don't think God expects us to put on a happy face and pretend as though we're pleased with what's going on. I think that we walk through the Psalms and we find occasion after occasion after occasion where the psalmist, be it David, be it Asaph, be it the sons of Korah, be it any number of people cry out and they ask God, what's going on with this situation? And I don't think God begrudges that one bit. I think it's okay. The psalmist said he'd pour out his complaint unto God. So let's go ahead and put the fake spirituality aside and go ahead and admit we all complain to God sometimes. And let me say this, it's better to complain to God than to just complain to anybody else. It's better testimony uh, to save our complaint for the benevolent and all wise ears of God and the all understanding ears of God. So the psalmist, that's what he's doing. He's complaining. And he basically complains about four things and they are divided. They are distinguished by this question, how long? Notice the first one with me in verse one. He says, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? And then he does not stop there. He voices what is really his heart's concern. He says, forever, forever. Let me say the first thing we notice in his complaint is he complains that he feels forgotten by God. Now, again, I and I I don't mean to belabor, I don't mean to whip a dead horse, but hopefully this horse still got a few more miles on the hoofs. But let me just say that for you and I, there are times, if we're to be honest, that we feel as though we know God hadn't forgot us, but we feel as though we that He has. We know better. We know all the theological truths. We know the promises of God. You could quote Hebrews 13 just like I could quote Hebrews 13, that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But what the psalmist is saying here, he's not saying God necessarily has forgotten him, but he is communicating that from where he's sitting, it appears as though God has forgotten him. This past Sunday morning, we preached a little bit about Hannah, And the Lord, and I think there is a point there that clearly illustrates this truth, and it does it by inversion. You remember that we talked about how the Lord remembered Hannah. And it doesn't mean that the Lord had lost the knowledge of Hannah. That's what it means to you and me. If we say, well, I forgot something. We say, I forgot my car keys. We mean, I lost the knowledge of my of my car keys. I've been over to pick something up and it fell out a hole in my head, and now I don't remember where my car keys went. That's what we mean when we say we have forgotten something. But the Lord has no capacity. There is no possibility of Him losing any of His infinite knowledge. And the times that the Bible talks about God not remembering something, it is in a judicial sense. Like when the Hebrews writer says uh, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. It's not that God is not aware of our sins, but He chooses not to bring them up against us. He chooses uh, not to hold judgment over us concerning them. And when the Bible says that the Lord remembered Hannah, it doesn't mean she was ever for a moment, out of his sight or out of his mind. But what it's saying is, if you didn't know God, and if you didn't know Hannah, and if you didn't know anything, and you just looked at that situation, it would look like God had forgotten her. She'd cry out, and it would look like God wouldn't answer. She would call out to God, and it would look like God didn't care. It would look like she had been forgotten. And yet we're told that the Lord remembered her. Now, I'm glad to know tonight that the Lord, in a sense, never forgets us. But inasmuch as that truth is made plain in Hannah's life that what it means is God began to work in her life. What that would then suggest is there are seasons in your life and mine where it looks like God is not working. You might say, preacher, I've never experienced that. Oh, sure you have. You've experienced it the same the psalmist has experienced it. When you've prayed for things, then had to wait on God to intervene. And you know God heard you. It looks like he has forgotten you. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, Lord, you it's like you have forgotten me. And then he speaks what is really the worry of his heart. He speaks what is really the whisper of the adversary. He says forever. You see, here's the reality. Patience is not necessarily being happy about waiting. Patience is being content to wait. You know what your flesh and my flesh tells us whenever we're waiting on God? Our flesh tells us this. He's never going to show up. That's what the psalmist is saying. Are you ever going to show up, God? Now, if you're honest and if I'm honest, we can look around even at the world at large today and look at the turmoil and chaos and desperation of our world. And if we were just to get real, real spiritual and honest, we'd say, you know, sometimes we worry about how this world is. We wonder, when exactly is God going to show up? Now we know from the scripture that uh, this was not only that that God's uh, that Christ's return was prophesied, but that men's doubting of that return was not only prophesied but was always a reality. That of old they would ask uh, that that they would say all things have remained the same of old from the days of our father. And it's in response to that that Peter reminds us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He reminds us that a day with the Lord is as A thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Now, does that mean that God takes a long time? No. Does that mean that God hurries up? No. It means that God's not running on your watch and my watch. He's running on His watch and He's doing things exactly in the way that they ought to be done. The psalmist feels forgotten. Number two, he says, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? He feels forsaken. So it's one thing to feel as though that God is not acting upon your behalf. That's what he says. But he goes a step further and he says, you know, God, it just feels like you ain't even around anymore. We might suggest this distinction that the first complaint relates to the externalities of his relationship with God. But the second relates to the internalities of his relationship with God. And he's saying essentially this, almost like Job said when he said, I go forward and I can't find him and back and he's not there. I look on the right hand and I cannot see him on the left hand where he doth work, but behold, he is not there. Job's saying, I can't find God. I can't sense his presence. I can't, you know, and I know as believers, if you've been saved any amount of time, in fact, I would say if you've been saved at all, you know what it is to enjoy the sweet presence of God for the realness of his person and presence to be felt in your Life and this psalmist is saying, you know, I just ain't had that lately. Can I tell you that you walk long enough in this world as a Christian, there'll be dry spells for you just like there is for me, just like there is for the people around you. I wish I could tell you that every time you walked into the prayer closet, lightning would fall from heaven and that the glory of God would spring up and the Shekinah glory of God would sit down uh, next to your easy chair. But the reality is you, you stay praying long enough. There'll be times you experience that, but there's going to be a lot of times when that's not the case. The psalmist says it just feels like you have not Been around, God, I've been looking for you, but cannot seem to find you. Why have you hidden your face from me? Notice verse two, his third complaint. He says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Now, these two things sort of build one upon the other. You understand, he says, first off, Lord, I look at the externality of my circumstances and it looks like you're not working. And then that leads me to believe you must have abandoned me. And and that leads me to doubt your presence. That leads me to doubt the reality of your fellowship with me. And then what does that produce? If I'm not talking to the Lord, I'm going to start talking to myself. Can I say that there is a great danger in spending more time talking to ourselves than talking to the Lord? He says, when I commune with my own soul, when I, and the words are very distinct, take counsel in my soul. In other words, he's saying, I'm letting my soul tell me what to do. Now what is your soul? Your soul is your consciousness. It's the spark of life. It's who you are. It's, it's what makes you who and what you are. Your spirit is that part of you that communicates with God that will live on forever along with your soul. And of course, we know what the body is. But this is the reason the Bible talks about the heart. And when it talks about the heart, it's, it's speaking of it synonymously with the mind and the soul, our emotional seat. Who we are. It's why if you give a man a heart transplant, it doesn't change his personality necessarily. It doesn't change his mind and his memories. It's talking about what makes you, you. The psalmist says, I've been taking counsel from what makes me, me. In other words, he says, I've been talking to me about this situation. <laughs> you know what that often leads to? Now, I don't know about you. You might be different than me and you might be different than the psalmist here, but I find this that when I, when I talk to myself about my problems, I ain't got nothing good to say about them. I don't, man. I, I, the, I, I am the biggest pessimist in the world. Now, not me, but me. You understand what I'm saying? Not not the me that's doing the listening, but the me that's doing the talking. He don't see nothing good coming out of this situation. Whatever it is, it's the worst thing it could possibly be. You know, that's what the psalmist says. I took counsel from myself. And what did that produce? He says, having sorrow in my heart daily. How often do we lean on our own understanding? Do we spend more time hashing out and worrying over our problems? than we do talking to the God that can change them. That's what he's talking about. I talk to myself. I, I counsel with myself. I ruminate over the, the pr- prospects and, and probabilities and, and possibilities. And all that left me with, he said, was sorrow daily. I would say at this, that he felt forlorn. Misery, sorrow. Joy comes. You know, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. But the joy of the Lord comes from His presence from talking with Him, from spending time with Him. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, in two ways. You read the Word of God and let Him talk to you, and then you pray and you talk to Him. And you say, well, preacher, can can He talk to me through prayer? Well, I think He can make His will and, and make Himself known through that means, but I think He gave us a book for a reason. Right? He gave us a book for a reason. And that's that's his preeminent way of wanting to communicate with us. And as such, that's what we mean when we say spending time with the Lord, praying and talking to him and hearing from his word as it relates to our life. That's where joy comes from. I'll tell you this, you spend all your time looking at the world and you're going to be depressed. We're a heavenly people. We're heavenly citizens. Our citizenship is not in this world. We can spend all of our time getting tore up with how wicked and broken this world is. And it is. And in a sense, that brokenness should reach us. It should touch us. It should give us an empathy and a sympathy and a burden to want to reach the world. But in as much as we determine whether things are looking good or whether things are looking bad, well, it just depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking at this world, things will look pretty bad. But the Old Testament uh, saints, the book of Hebrews, reminds us uh, that they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They looked beyond the, the pain of this world. And I would say this, that while I don't know that the world is necessarily categorically more wicked than it was in that time when God wiped everything out with a flood, it's because the imagination of men's thoughts was only evil continually. But I will say this, everything's sure enough on display a lot more. We know a lot more about all of these things. And if we spend all of our time focusing on those things, and by, by the same token, your problems, my problems, if we spend all of our time living in a closet with those problems, focusing, worrying, obsessing, we shouldn't be surprised when we find despair and depression from it. How does it look, preacher? Depends on what you're looking at. Depends on what you're looking at. He felt forlorn. And then notice the last phrase. He says, How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Here's what he said. He said, I feel forgotten. I feel like, Lord, you're you not working in my life. I feel forsaken. I can't find you anywhere. I want to commune with you. I want to speak with you. But I'm convinced that you're distant from me. He felt forlorn when he looked to himself for strength and to himself for peace. It only uh, brought sorrow and despair. And so where did that leave him? It left him at the hands of the enemy. Now, what was David's enemy? Well, it can be any number of people. It depends on when you're looking in his life, really, to be honest. Uh, for the uh, early portion of his life, David's worst enemy was Saul. For the last time, portion of his life, David's worst enemy was David. But it just depends on what season of your life you're looking at as to who is hunting and who is seeking after David's life. But here's the truth. It really don't matter to you and I who it was. If it did, the Bible would have told us who it was. What really matters is this. David had an enemy, sure, but so do you and I. So do you and I. Uh, We've got three enemies. We have the world system, the world culture and philosophy that seeks to dethrone Christ from our hearts. We have the flesh that seeks to uh, launch insurrection against the authority of Christ from within. We have the devil that all the while is pulling strings and working a mystery of iniquity to try uh, to corrupt our life and our family and our spiritual walk. At the end of the day, all those enemies align themselves together. And here's what the psalmist says. He says, I feel forfeited feel like God has given me over to my enemy. You ever feel like a punching bag? <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> if not, let's trade lives for a little while. It would be nice. Give me a break. Sure you do. We, we all do. You ever feel like, I mean, it's just one blow right after another and it feels like everywhere you turn and everything you try to do and every inch that you try to gain for God, it it comes with with blood and sweat and tears and prayers and begging and agonizing. And it just seems like the enemy always has the upper hand. If you've ever felt like that, you felt like the psalmist did. Psalmist said, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's his complaint. But I want you to notice the psalmist's comfort because It does not end at verse number 2. What a miserable psalm it would be if it ended there. But notice what he does in verse 3. I want you to notice in his comfort, first notice his recourse. He says, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Now you say, well, preacher, what's the difference between the first two verses and verse 3. The difference is in the first two verses, he's complaining. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we're not doing it in a critical spirit of God, as long as we're doing it seeking help from the Lord. But when you get to verse 3, here's what he starts doing. He starts actively praying. That's not to suggest he wasn't talking to God before. But before, he's just complaining about how bad his situation is. By verse 3, he's starting to ask for God's Help. his first recourse after he got his complaining out of the way was to say, all right, Lord, now I need you to fix this situation. Can I tell you, and you've heard me say it a million times, but prayer should not be your last resort. It should be your first recourse. We're getting ready to have this prayer meeting on Friday night. I love all-night prayer meeting. Uh, my flesh hates it more than anything else we do, but my spirit loves it more than anything else we do. Uh, I, I love all-night prayer meeting. God meets with me, and I and I trust He does you as well when you spend time on this altar talking to God and getting serious about it. I was telling somebody the other day, or maybe I was saying it in church, I don't know, everything's blur anymore. You feel like that sometimes. Uh, but I mean you know, it'll take you it'll take you about five minutes just to get praying. It'll take you five minutes just to get the introductions done with with God. You know part of the problem with your prayer life and mine, so oftentimes all it consists of is the introductions. All it consists of is the formalities of it. And I'm not against formalities. I, I appreciate somebody saying hello to me when they walk up to me, not launching into a conversation, but the conversation isn't the hello, it's everything that comes after. It takes about five minutes to really get praying with God. Or if you're carnal like me, it might take 10 or 15. But once you really start talking to God, I'm talking about talking to him like he's there because he is there. Feeling his presence, dwelling in the presence of God in your prayer life, you'll find God will meet with you. Now, why is it that we have to be dragged kicking and screaming into that kind of fellowship with God? Why is it that we have to be dragged kicking and screaming into that kind of communion with him. The psalmist, he had it right. The first thing he did was he prayed. We don't know where everything begins because you know what? As far as he's concerned, it begins with prayer. His first recourse, his first thing he does is he Praise. Notice number two, not only his recourse, I want you to notice his request. Now, what did he ask God to do? Well, we notice first he wants God to hear him. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. So he wants his prayer heard. But what does he actually ask God for? Well, notice he really only asks for one thing. He says, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest mine enemies say I prevail against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So stop and think about the psalmist here. He could have asked for any number of things. His son would one day ask for wisdom. And by asking wisdom, God would grant him uh, wisdom and riches and, and, and prominence and power and all sorts of things. And, and Solomon undoubtedly learned to pray from the example, at least, of his, of his father. David could have asked for anything. He could have said, Lord, smite my enemies down. But that's not what he asked for. He could have said, Lord, encourage me. Give me a joyful and glad heart. It's not what he asked for. He asked for one thing. and Here's what he asked. He asked God for light, light, the word light in there. It doesn't mean to alleviate a burden, although I think there's an interesting pun to be made there because certainly scriptural light does alleviate a burden. But what it literally means is to illuminate. And here's what he's saying. I'm looking and all I see is darkness, God. I need you to shine a little light in there. Uh, This isn't in my message, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You know what that tells me? He believed that though all he could see was darkness, there was light out there. All he could see was darkness, but he believed there must be light. You know what that is? That's faith. Faith. He believes that what God has said is there, is there. He believes that what God has promised to provide can be provided. He says, Lord, I see nothing but darkness. I need a little bit of light. Now, what does he mean by that? Because I don't think he physically, literally meant uh, to light a torch in our day, to shine a flashlight on something. So he must mean some kind of figurative light. Uh, certainly he must mean some spiritual light. And that's why he's praying for it. So what does light mean? Well, light in your Bible means all kinds of of things, has all sorts of of symbolism. But but I want to think about what David meant by light. And I looked through the book of Psalms and I found a few places where he talks about light. Listen in Psalms 4, 6. He says, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. In Psalms 36, 9, he says this, For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light shall we see light. So evidently to the psalmist, light meant the presence of God. Here's what he's saying. Lord, I want to feel your presence. Now, feeling is not always a physical thing, and and I want to be careful. I don't want to get too abstract with what we're talking about. Here's, here's how I would sum it up. David saying, I know you're there. I know you're there. I know you hear me. I know you've not left this situation. But it says, Lord, it would feel awful good if I could, could feel that you're there. If I could enjoy communion with you. If I could, if I could hear your voice in my heart. <laughs> if I could talk to you and, and, and have the, the confidence that you've heard me. Now, can I say this to you tonight? That all is a product of faith. And faith is not a product of that. In other words, it doesn't come from God giving us some grand experience that produces faith, but rather the experience that we enjoy is the product of taking God at his word. And believe. you remember what I said? All I see is darkness, Lord, but I believe there's light there. It's faith. Lord, I don't feel your presence, but you told me your presence was here. So I'm going to go ahead and talk to you like you're here because I believe you are. Even though I can't see you, I can't hear you. I don't have any appreciable sensation of you being here, but you told me you are, Lord. So I'm going to believe you. And you know what the psalmist says? In thy light (laughs) shall we see light. You know what you'll find? If you'll treat God like He's there, you know what you'll find out? He's there. He's not there because you treat Him like He is there. He, He always was there but you just lost sight of that. It's so easy to lose sight of it. He's asking for the Lord's presence. And then I saw another way that he that he used this term light. In Psalms 43.3, he says, O oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. He used it in this way again in Psalms 119.105. If you grew up doing the pledge of the Bible, you know this passage, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, the 130th verse of Psalms 119, the psalmist says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. He giveth understanding unto the simple. So to David, when he said, lighten mine eyes, he, he meant, Lord, I want the light of your countenance. I want your presence. I, I know you're here, but I want to I appreciate your presence. I want to experience your presence. I want to have fellowship and commune. I want to pray to you and know I'm being heard. I want to hear from you and know that you're present in my life. But then he couples with that, I think, you might disagree, but I think he's also talking about the Lord's precepts. And I think that both of those things are spoken of, not interchangeably, but married one to another for a reason. You know what the key is to enjoying His presence? It's His precepts. You know where you'll find God? You'll find Him in this book. John 1.1 makes it abundantly clear that God indwells this book. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word... Was God, the same as in the beginning with God. You say, I just want to feel Jesus' presence. Well, John said in verse 14 that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. We beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, to read this Word is to hear the voice of God. People say, I want to hear God's voice. I want to know what God wants. Listen to His voice. This is His voice. This is His love letter to you and to I. So that's His request. Lord, give me light. Where does he think he's going to find that light? He knows it takes the Word of God. You're in a place of despair. Open your Bible and start reading. It'll be more profitable than anything else you could do. Now, I'm not suggesting we can't get help from people that can give encouraging words. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ask people to pray for us and to intercede on our behalf. Of course, we should do all that. But I'm saying you can do all that. But if you ain't doing this, you're not doing enough. Get in get in His Word. And you know, you may find that David at one time in a very similar place, the Bible says that he encouraged himself in the Lord. You might find that the Lord is enough if you'll get in His Word and search it And study it. So we see his request and then notice his reason. I'm not going to dwell this. I I want to move on. But notice why he says, notice why he asks for God to lighten his eyes. Number one, he says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He said, this is why it's so important, God, that I don't ignore this problem in my spiritual walk, that I don't dismiss the despair that I'm experiencing. Number one, because of the weight of the burden. He says, if I keep going this way, I'm going to die. Now, How explicit that language is, how how literal that language is, only David knows. Was he contemplating taking his own life? The language would seem to suggest that. Was he contemplating that he merely his physical body would break down under the weight of being hunted the way he was? And the anxiety, it's possible. But whatever the literal explanation of it might be in David's heart and mind, I think we can draw this conclusion that despair of this caliber cannot be left undealt with. Because if it is, it'll either kill us physically or it'll kill us emotionally and spiritually in as much as we talk about our spiritual development. Saying this, why, why, why do we carry burdens that God begs for? Why do we carry burdens that Christ died for? Why do we carry burdens that God's shoulders and arms are big enough for? Why, when he says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you, why do we carry burdens that God loves us enough to take off of us? I see the weight of the burden, but then there's another reason. Verse 4, he says, lest mine enemies say I prevail against him, and those that uh, trouble me rejoice when I am moved. In other words, he says the wicked man's blasphemy is another reason it's important. Listen, as a Christian, I don't think God gets upset at us for struggling. We all struggle. If it ain't you today, it might be you tomorrow. And if it's not you tomorrow, it'll probably be you the day after. I don't care who you are, man. We all struggle. We don't need to walk around guilty all the time for struggling. But we do need to acknowledge this, that one of the greatest testimonies of the reality of God in the life of the believer is the joy that they carry with them. And we need to understand that it's, it's it's not a fitting testimony for a Christian to walk around miserable. It's not. God God saved us and called us to a joyful life. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be delusional. It doesn't mean we have to be blind. It doesn't mean we have to be fake. Listen, I, boy, Lord, help me to say this the right way. We get a real taste of this, we won't have to fake it. It's not to say you won't have problems. It's not to say you won't have hard days and dark days. We all do. But I'm saying this, there's something to be said for the bright testimony of a Christian with joy in their heart, in their walk with God. That's something the world can't replicate. If you think the world can replicate it, just look around at the world around you and ask yourself if they have the joy of the Lord. So I see His reason given. And then finally, I want you to notice His commitment. So the psalmist says, here is my, my battle. Here is my burden. Here is what I'm dealing with and how I'm feeling. But I'm praying to God and I'm asking God to grant me the light of His presence and the light of His precepts. I'm, I've asked God to bring me out of this valley that I'm in. But in the meantime, boy, that's important. In the meantime, you know, sometimes the time we wait can get pretty mean. In the meantime, as we wait... As we wait on God to do what we know that one day He will do during the days of the how long. What can we commit to? Now, somebody's going to say, preacher, I can't help it. I can't do anything. Well, you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Preacher, I wish that I wasn't feeling. I wish I wasn't dealing with this, but there's nothing I can do about it. Now, that's not true. You may not be able to do everything about it. You may not be able to do uh, anything that you'd like to do, about it, but there are some things you can do. What can you do during the how long seasons of life? Look at verse 5. The psalmist says, But I have trusted in thy mercy. The psalmist commits to do three things. Here's the first one. To lean on His love. To be reminded that we have a merciful God. You know we have a God bent towards mercy. It's His nature to be merciful. He is a merciful God. I've known people, and I've probably been this person at times, in in life i i and if i'm hungry enough i'll be this type of person anytime in life i've been the type of person that was bent towards harshness you ever seen anybody like that you ever met anybody whose inclination was to was to wipe people out you ever you ever met anybody that laughed with delight when they bankrupted people in monopoly you better watch out for those people if those people ever get the levers of power we're all in trouble there are people I've met in life and you've met in life that seem to have a cruelty that they delight, they delight in unkindness, in harshness, in and judgment. Now let me say, I'm, I'm glad God's going to judge the wicked. I am. But can I remind you that we have a God bent towards mercy. You and I better be glad that He is. He's bent towards mercy doesn't mean He is not wrathful when He must be wrathful. It certainly doesn't mean He's not holy because He is always holy. But I'm saying His default, His inclination is towards mercy. And the psalmist says, you know, in these times I just need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded that if God had His way irrespective of the outcome for me, He would show me mercy immediately. And if He's not showing me mercy immediately, it must be because the tarrying is more merciful than the satisfaction of what I'm crying out for. God's inclination is towards mercy. The psalmist says this one thing I'm going to keep in mind. I know that He loves me. No matter what does change, no matter what does not change, no matter what I experience, I'm going to ground myself in this reality. I know that my God loves me and desires to show mercy in my life. So he says, I'm going to lean on His love. Number two, he says this, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation So he commits, number one, to lean on his love, but number two, he commits to rejoice in his redemption. He says, I've got stuff to rejoice over. I understand, and I don't know if I'm where, I don't know if I'm where Paul was. I don't think I'll ever be till I get to heaven. Can you imagine that one day I'm going to be as spiritual as the apostle Paul? Only because this vile body will be made like unto Christ's glorious body. (laughs) Not that I have already attained either or already perfect, mind you, but I, but I do follow after. You know, Paul said, in everything, give thanks. That's hard. That's hard. I can do it and you can do it, or else God wouldn't have commanded us to do it. But it is hard. And I believe it probably has to be done in the person and personality of Christ, in His power and strength. But can I say something that you and I ought to find easy to give thanks in, easy to rejoice in? And that's His redemption. That's our salvation. Here's, and I said this a moment ago, how does it look, preacher? It depends on what you're looking at. You can spend all your time looking at your problems, or you can spend at least a little time looking at God's goodness and grace in your life. In other words, I don't know what you've got to complain over. i got a few things I could complain over. Some of them you might think are silly. Some of them you might understand. Some of them you might not like at all. But I can tell you this, whatever I have to complain over, I also always and more so have something to rejoice over. I make the choice and you make the choice how we spend our breath. The Bible says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. It means you and I can praise God. No matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through. I'm not saying you have to pretend you don't have problems. But I am saying you have to pretend that you, let me say it right. I'm going to get it said here. You can't pretend you don't have blessings. I'm not saying you don't have problems. I'm not asking you to pretend you don't have problems but I'm saying you can't pretend you ain't got something to rejoice over if you're saved by the grace of God. It says, I will rejoice in His redemption. And then look at verse 6. He says, I will sing unto the Lord. Here's why. Because He hath dealt bountifully with me. He commits to praise Him for His provision. To not allow the problems He's experiencing to, to blind Him to the goodness of God ever present in His daily life. And said, say, well, what's the distinction there? Well, I think the end of verse 5 is talking about what God did when He saved us. And if we didn't have anything else to praise God over, we could praise Him throughout all of the ages to come, just for His grace, just for His salvation, just because He looked down on a poor sinner like you and me. That would be enough to keep us praising God and running laps all through eternity. But we don't have to. <laughs> you know why? Because that's not the last thing God ever did for you. And it sure ain't the last thing God ever did for me. In fact, if we start looking at our life, we'll find this. Whatever problems that we may be experiencing, they do not eradicate the provision and blessings of God that we are enjoying fact is, you have some things probably in your life you don't like. I know I've got some things in my life I'm not pleased and don't like, and I wish were different. I'm praying for God to change, and I don't think that's wrong to pray for Him to change, but let me never allow a a tunnel vision to develop where all I see is my problems, and I cannot see. I'm blinded to. I'm robbed of the praise that accompanies the bountiful blessings of God in my life day by day. Guess what, man? You and I, we woke up this morning now listen, before you get all bowed up and say, well, preacher, you just don't know what I'm going... Some folks didn't wake up this morning. Well, preacher, you don't understand the problems that I... know, but I understand you walked in here on your own two legs. But a lot of people couldn't do that. I didn't say you didn't have problems. I didn't say your problems wasn't bigger than my problems. I'm just simply saying this. You and I, we always have something to praise Him over. doesn't mean you have to pretend like you don't have problems. Well, where does the light come from? Well... Comes from the light of His countenance, and a lot of that comes from looking at God and what God is doing in your life and in my life. I'm not saying not to cry out, "How long?" I'm right there with you. I listen. I, I'll, I'll, I'll sing. I'll sing baritone to your to your "How long?" cry. All right, we'll sing it together to God. But I'm saying let's make sure that as we do that, we do not miss, we do not dismiss the goodness of God in our life, and find strength and joy in His grace. That he's poured out upon us. Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I don't know what God may have done in your heart. But uh, if he did something in your heart. I think you ought to find a place at this altar. And talk to him about it. And if he convicted you about something. You ought to repent of it. Confess it to him. Repent of it. Get it right. Maybe he just encouraged you. Comforted you in some matter. Uh, maybe he's settled something in your heart, a commitment that you need to make. Whatever it is God may have dealt with you about, I promise you this, if you'll deal with him, you'll find that you're the better for it. Father, bless this invitation. May it uplift the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.